0: Good morning, Salt City Church. What a joy it is to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Tony. If I haven't met you yet, I get to lead one of our college ministries here called The Salt Company that primarily reaches the city of St. Paul, and it has been such a blast, and I love my job. So I'm excited to be here with you guys. If you have a Bible, would love for you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be cruising this morning, okay? Two chapters and two verses. I've got four points. We're going to move, but it's about 90% of your way through your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 4. As you guys turn there, have you guys ever watched Olympic gymnastics? Holy cow, so awesome, okay? So I was not a fan until this last week when I was prepping for this sermon, and then I watched all of the 2020 replays, and it was great. And specifically, the balance beam routine, amazing. The girl who won gold was this 16-year-old girl, which I was thinking back to when I was 16, and I was like, she's amazing. amazing. And she did, like, this crazy dismount where she did, like, a double pike and landed on her two feet, and I had no idea what it meant, but I literally started clapping. I was like, that's amazing. Good for her. Amazing routine. Okay, so here's why I bring up this idea of Olympic gymnastics, and maybe even more specifically, the balance beam routine. Okay, here's my tie-in to the sermon as we get into the sermon this morning, that the balance beam routine is a lot like the Christian walk. So here's what I mean by that. I think when you first come to know who Jesus is, you hear about this language of walking with Jesus. You hear about this idea of you walk with Jesus. And a lot of us, including myself, I think initially I thought of walking with Jesus like we're walking through the park. okay, Going down a nice path, there's birds, it's sun everywhere, it's amazing. But actually, I think the pastoral epistles are trying to communicate something really beautiful to us this morning. That walking with Jesus is less like walking down a park path and more like walking on a balanced path beam as a college pastor one of the joys that I get to see time and time again is watching students raise their hand and say I want to follow Jesus I want to walk with him but the hardest part of my job unequivocally so is watching students fall off the balance beam time and time again swayed by false teaching by the allure of sin by the brokenness inside of their souls for one reason or another fall off the balance beam and so here's my invitation to all of us this morning is if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm on the balance beam, but my legs are shaking. I'm looking at the next 50 years of my life and I'm asking myself the question, can I last on the balance beam? Here's the good news and the big idea I have for all of us this morning, that a good church keeps you balanced. All right, if you're a note taker, here's where we're going this morning. In order to stay balanced on the balance beam of faith, we must stay committed to the truth we must pursue discipline. We must honor the church and glorify God in our work. All right, let's begin with 1 Timothy chapter 4. We will begin with stay committed to the truth. Verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. That the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Okay, so Paul starts this passage this morning with demonic teaching, which I don't know about you guys, but First Timothy has been spiced for the last couple of weeks. Holy cow. We're talking about demonic teaching this morning. And and as you look at this passage, one of the interesting things as you look at verse 3 is the demonic teaching that people are believing is abstinence from marriage and abstinence from food. Okay, so I just want to pause here and think a little bit critically. When I first read this chapter, I was like, okay, demonic teaching, I'm kind of imagining some scary horror movie type of things, but instead, Paul actually talks about abstinence. And in initial reading, you kind of think of abstinence, it's kind of like holy, you know, not pursuing marriage for the sake of being undevotedly known or to know Christ undevotedly, to abstain from certain type of foods and to have self-control. It almost seems holy on the surface, but actually what Paul is getting at to underneath the surface is this deep theological reality of the origins of demonic teaching. Think back with me to Genesis chapter three, the first encounter between demons, Satan, and man. And the basis of the conversation between Satan and Adam and Eve was did God really say that? Did he really say that? Does God actually want good gifts for you? Does he actually mean what he was saying? And the basis of this demonic teaching was although the Bible had talked about marriage being a great gift from God and all foods now being made clean, the demonic teachers were saying, did God really say that? The context to understand this chapter is that there were monks that would go out to desolate places and they would cut themselves. They would abstain from things like marriage, good gifts that God had given them, starve themselves from the food that God had prepared for them, and they would come back to the church and say, look how holy I am, for I am abstaining from certain things. And what Paul is defining as demonic teaching in this chapter is the idea of extra-biblical teaching, this idea of commanding the people of God something that is outside of what the word of God commands. That is the demonic teaching that we're talking about this morning. A quote that I found that I honestly couldn't find who said it, okay? So I'm just going to read it. It's a great quote. But a quote that I found that I think encapsulates this really well is this. There have always been those in the church who regard themselves... Yeah, anonymous, godly, smart person. I couldn't find them, but I'm just assuming, okay? (laughs) Probably like a great theologian from 300 years ago. Okay. I'll restart. There have always been those in the church who regard themselves as more spiritual than God himself and have a stricter set of rules for living than God does. Great quote. I know, I couldn't find who said it, but I really want to include it. And here's here's the reason why I share that with you, is the brokenness under all of this, the brokenness under this demonic teaching is actually a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's not just that they didn't want marriage or not just that they didn't want food, but at the core of their belief system, they believe something untrue about God and the news that he gave. They believed that the sacrifice of Christ wasn't enough. So they had to sacrifice in order to earn God's approval. They didn't believe that God would want to give them good gifts like marriage and food. And here's why that matters for us today as like modern Christians, okay? It's very unlikely that you will encounter people who are like, don't get married and don't eat certain foods. But it is very likely that you will encounter churches or people that have extra biblical teachings And say things like, I know the Bible doesn't say this, but if you were a real Christian, you would do this. And I think for all of us, as I kind of was teaching, thinking through this text, a subconscious reality in my soul was like, I do that. I command other people to do things that aren't necessarily explicitly in the Bible. And I have a temptation in my sinfulness to look at other people and say, okay, I know the Bible doesn't explicitly command this, but if you were a real Christian, you would do this. And that is the heart, the core, the essence of the demonic teaching that is played out in abstinence of marriage and abstinence from foods. So in order to stay on the balance beam of following Jesus, we need to be a part of a church family that preaches the truth. To know and love the Bible is the aim. That is how we stay on the balance beam of staying committed to the truth. This next chunk of passage is really interesting because paul knew that one ditch to fall into was like the self-righteous legalism where you add a bunch of things to the bible and heap commands onto other people and the other ditch was spiritual passivity so look with me to verses 6 through 10 to pursue discipline if you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of christ jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths rather train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life but also for the life to come the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who's the savior of all people especially of those who believe Okay, Paul begins this section of Scripture with a call to Timothy to teach to the church what, church what is true, faithful to get to God's word and to not get caught up in the junk of silly myths. But he says this really interesting thing in verses 7 and 8. He says, rather train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Okay, so when I was listening to a couple sermons on this text, there was this pastor that was like, get spiritually fit, okay? And he just like yelled that like 10 times throughout his sermon. I'm not going to do that, but the principle is pretty good, okay? So the idea is the same. I think as I thought about this, our world, we live in a really um, physical fitness oriented world, okay? There's like 70 different diets you can do, 40 different training plans. It's like hot yoga, cold showers, the whole shebang. And we have a huge emphasis on physical fitness, Okay, But here's my question for us as a church. Do we put as much emphasis on our spiritual fitness as we do on our physical fitness? And maybe even more convicting for me, do I put half the amount of effort I do into my physical fitness as I do my spiritual fitness? The principle is the same as the crazy pastor yelled a lot, that we are to be people who seek spiritual fitness, the condition of our souls. So the call to Timothy is to train himself for godliness, to practice disciplines and practices that will yield fruit in his life to know love, and know, love, and cherish Jesus more. And the primary way that Timothy is called to do this is actually in verse 6, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine he followed. And as Timothy trains in godliness, here's what he will be able to do. Look with me to verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in impurity. Okay, this is the beautiful part about this text. Timothy, being trained in godliness, knowing, loving, and surrendering his life to Jesus and to the Word of God, will be able to be transformed inside out and become an example to the people of the church at Ephesus in speech, in conduct, in faith, and in purity. There are two applications for this section that I wanna hit on. The first one is a little bit more confusing, so I'm gonna hit that one first, and then we'll go to the more obvious one. The first one is this. This text is actually how you should determine the type of church you go to. Here's what I mean by that. I don't know about you guys, if you guys have noticed kind of the wider evangelical trend, but young people in particular are tempted to go to a church where the pastor is really cool, which if that's what you've come and you're looking for, you are gonna be wildly disappointed wildly i love drew so much he will never wear a leather jacket or ripped jeans when he preaches the bible okay it's just never going to happen okay but i actually think there's like this really beautiful theological point that paul gets to make in this chapter which is timothy as an example to the church at ephesus should prioritize character over everything else So the ways that we should, as people who are attending a church and involved in a church and serving in a church, should look for a type of church is the same qualifications that Paul gave to Timothy at Ephesus and God gives to Drew here at Salt City. We should be people that value character over coolness and value character over anything else. And Drew, like Timothy, is a disciplined man who's a great Bible teacher. Great leader, but primarily, first and foremost, seeks intimacy with Jesus, and that should be our qualifications for a pastor. Second application that we see is that as Timothy is being trained in godliness, he's to set an example for the church of Ephesus. So we, too, should see Drew's example of disciplining himself under the word of God, committing himself to the Bible, and we, too, should be people who pursue spiritual fitness, That we should make it our aim to become more like Jesus through the word that he gives us. The third thing that will keep us balanced in the pursuit of following Jesus is to honor the church. Look with me to 1 Timothy 5 1 through 3, and then we'll jump to verse 17. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially of those who labor in preaching and teaching. So what we learned earlier in this chapter is that Timothy was a youth. Okay, so now some people look at that and they're like, oh, he was like 12. Wrong, I had to Google it. It's amazing. He was actually 30, which is like kind of old for like our types of churches. You know, that's, that's, not, that's not supposed to be offensive. But anyways, biblically speaking... <laughs> Paul 70 and Timothy's 30, the word youth in the Greek is actually to describe anyone under 40 years old. So the reason why I define that is because probably a lot of us in the room would, consider, would be considered a youth by Paul. And youth, youthful people, Paul describes as a need to honor those in the church. So let's do that right now. Let's begin with those in the church. First, older men. Okay, this one has specific instructions. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. So instead of teaching this, I just wanna encourage my good friend, Terry Langland. Don't know where he is, but he goes by Crooked T, and he has a sweatshirt, and it's so cute. But I just wanna talk about Terry. Terry Langland has been an example to so many of the people in our church of what it means to stay on the balance beam for decades, to follow Jesus faithfully. And so not only is his example as he walks with Jesus beautiful, but his joy of walking with Jesus actually really encourages me. Terry. I, I still don't know where you are. I'm looking for you. Thanks for being a father to the fatherless in our ministry and being a mentor to us. We love you. Okay, moving on. Younger men, okay, as brothers. Not much to say here, Jalil. You're my brother. I love you, man. Older women, okay. Um, as, I was a bit sharp. i make that smoother next time. Okay, older women as mothers. Older women of Salt City. You guys are our second moms, and that's so awesome. And in particular, as I was reading this text, I was thinking of Melissa Stevenson and Jennifer Tuttle. And if you know these two older women, you know this for a fact, that they suffer in joy and teach us what it means to be shepherded by Christ, by shepherding us. So I just want to say thank you. Our church needs you. We're a bunch of youths that need you guys a ton. Thank you for being our spiritual mothers. Younger, younger woman, I'm thankful what Paul says here in this verse. He says, in all purity. To honor the younger woman of our church, and I'm just going to expand that to women of our church, in all purity. I think this is an area of the church that has missed for the last 2,000 years, an area that we're growing in, an area that I think we're growing in accountability and grace. And so I just want to say, if you've been affected by Younger women not being treated with purity, dignity, honor, and respect. I'm really sorry. And the church is repenting for that. Just not just our church, but all, all churches. Lastly, the category that he talks about is widows, and I'm just gonna expand that a little bit to suffering people. Now, this is super interesting. If you look at your Bible, a good chunk of 1 Timothy 5 is about widows, which I was initially confused about, but actually, Paul is giving elder-like wisdom to Timothy on how to love and care for all people in the church. And so Timothy's call is to care for um, widows who are truly widows versus false widows. And the context is this. There are people at the church of Ephesus that were claimed to be widows, but actually they had a lot of money and a lot of relatives that could have taken care of them. But they went to the church line to kind of skip all of that and gain resources from the church so that actual widows weren't able to get them. So Paul, in his wisdom, is exhorting Timothy as the pastor of the church of Ephesus to spend your resources wisely and to steward them for the greater good of all people. So here's what that means for us as a church. We want to help and love and serve our city in so many beautiful different ways. But we want to partner with organizations that truly know what they're doing in the city and not give out all of our resources in a flippant way, but use it in a wise way. We wanna partner with resources, with organizations that are doing gospel work for people who are truly in need. And the last group that Timothy and that we as an extension of the youths are to honor is the leadership of the church. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Okay, I just wanna confess, as a young man, as a youth, my temptation, my bent in life is to buck against authority. And I think that might be true for a lot of us. And so here's what Paul is teaching Timothy in an extension to me and to all of us to give honor to the authorities of our church. So I want to honor Drew, actually, because he, primarily because, man, he has done such an incredible job of faithfully teaching the word of God, even when the text is incredibly hard last week's text is a doozy of a text okay that no one wants to teach in 2022 but he did it faithfully and he's done that for the last five years and it's actually his leadership and teaching over the last five years of my life that have really impacted me and so i want to honor him and say thank you drew for being faithful to that as well as jordan who has been an elder of our church and faithfully led in that way as well okay here's what's true speaking as a youth to a lot of us here. All of us have a temptation to criticize, undermine, and assume the worst of our authorities. And I just want to say that I get it. I'm in weekly trauma therapy to heal from an authoritative wound from my past. I understand why it is hard. I understand that your trust structures may have been broken and it is difficult for you to sit under the authority of the local church. But here's my encouragement for you. Here's what a good church will do. It will give you a vision of men and women who love and know Jesus. It will give you a vision of what a healthy, authoritative relationship can look like. Not that of abuse and pain, but actually of encouragement and inspiration. And so my hope is for all of us, us youths, that as we sit under the authority in the local church, that we would become people who actually become healed through that. We would look more like Jesus through that. I think the path to true humility is to honor others especially those in authority over us. So here's my application for this section, okay? After the sermon, would you go to someone who's maybe a non-youth, okay, someone over 40 years old in our church, and give them a hug, and just say thank you so much for being an inspiration to us for what it looks like to walk on the balance beam called following Jesus for decades to come. And would those people actually feel really loved and honored in our church? Okay, last way, I know we're cruising here, To stay balanced in our walk with Jesus is to glorify God in our work. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be looking at two verses. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching might not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. rather. They must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Okay, so the last section of our passage this morning is referring to slavery, or in textual language, bond servants. I want to clarify a few things as we enter into the teaching of this passage in order for all of us to understand what slavery was in this context. The slavery of the Roman Empire during this time was far different from the slavery of the transatlantic slave trade with a few major differentiating factors. The first one is, slavery was not race-based. You were not enslaved because you were a person of color or a different type of color than the main majority culture. You were enslaved for other reasons. Becoming a slave was often an opportunity for those born into an impoverished socioeconomic status to garner education and a better perspective future. Slavery or bondservant status was not perpetual. There were many opportunities to transcend that status. And the Word of God has something to say about the transatlantic slave trade in Exodus 21 that condemns the kidnapping and sale of people. The transatlantic slave trade was abhorrent to God. Saying this, slavery then and slavery throughout the time of history has always been broken. Human beings have been cursed with sin, have used other people as stepping tones, power struggles, have always been a part of the human experience. And guys, to be honest, when I first became a Christian, and even now still, these passages are hard at times to understand. And so if you're here and you're like, man, First Timothy is full of spice, it has been a hard couple weeks, our staff would love to walk with you. But as I study these passages more, I actually begin to see the beauty and the brokenness of what Paul and the New Testament writers are trying to do in the New Testament. Because if Paul and the New Testament writers would have called the slaves to revolt, the likely human response would have been to put down that rebellion by crucifying thousands of slaves. This happened in 71 BC led by Spartacus and would have been the model for what happened to slaves who revolted. Secondarily, the gospel message of the New Testament brought a transformational heart that changed both the lives and the slaves. That as the New Testament writers were writing about this, they were bringing forth a two millennia revolution of seeing people from every social status made in the image of God, breaking down those sin walls of sin, of racism, greed, and class hatred, and therefore creating a society that one day everyone could be free. The system was broken, but the New Testament writers knew that the only thing that could change a sinful world was the individual transition and transformation of hearts. So. That's kind of a brief theology on why slavery in the Roman Empire was different than slavery in the transatlantic slave trade. But I want to go back to the text here and point out a couple things. One, Paul addresses slaves directly, immediately giving them great value and dignity as image bearers of God. And then two, he gives them incredible purpose in their work. Look with me to verse one let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of god and the teaching may not be reviled the call to the bond servants is to honor their masters but the purpose of the call the reason for the call the vision for the call is so that the name of god and the teaching may not be reviled in essence Paul is looking at someone who likely felt like their work had no purpose, that they weren't passionate about, and in essence could have been in a really difficult scenario, and looks at them and says, not only do you have immense value as a bondservant, but your work has immense purpose. Okay, here's what this means for us, Salt City. As we think about 2,000 years later, as we think about a very different culture today, if we can take the principle that Paul is saying here, calling bondservants to honor our masters, here's what we can be taught by, by the passage. We can be taught to honor those who employ us, whoever they are, to give them honor and dignity as image bearers of God, even if we don't like them or don't like the work that we're doing. We believe that as Christians, honoring our employers, submitting to their authority and giving the best work possible gives glory to God and the teaching of his word. Okay, so here's my contextual pushback for the young, modern, hip Christian, there's a temptation in our culture to only work hard at our jobs is if we feel like we're passionate about it. There's a temptation in our culture to only believe that our jobs are purposeful if we enjoy it. But here's what I think Paul and Timothy would instruct us. I think they would say that we are to work hard at our jobs, not because we are passionate, but because we understand that it's purposeful, that the work that we do makes much of the name of God and the teaching that we stand by. And I just want to say, there's so many people in our church family that do this incredibly well, that work jobs that they're not passionate about, but they know are really purposeful. And the person that came to mind for me was Dave Hunting. So I don't know if you guys know Dave, but he's tall and he does tech all the time. But Dave's great. I lived in his basement for a long time. That sounds a little weird. He had a full, it was a whole thing. I rented it, whatever. So anyways, Dave's awesome. Dave's awesome. And here's something that I observed about Dave's life over two years. He's an estimator for a construction company. I know nothing about that, but I can assume it's not riveting, okay? I can assume it doesn't get him up in the morning. He's like, can't wait to estimate some buildings. But I could see him work, and I was like, that guy knows that he has a purpose in his work. The way that he loves the people in his life, the way that he leverages his job to love Kaylee and the kids, Kate and Violet, the way that he understands that his work supplies gospel mission both in his local area of his company, but also his local church, I could see that he knew that his work had purpose. So one of the ways that we as young, hip, modern Christians stay balanced in our walks with Jesus is to look around our church and meet people who are being faithful at their jobs that they may not be passionate about, but they know that biblically has immense purpose. Okay, here's what I want to end our time together, a recap of this doozy text. To stay committed to the truth, we must know our Bibles. What if our church could tell what was false teaching because we knew what was true teaching? We knew and loved the word of God, and that changed us. Second, pursue discipline, to focus on our spiritual fitness, that we became a people that both cared about our physical health but knew that our spiritual health would pay dividends for this life and the life to come. Point three, to honor the church to after this service give a hug to someone who's a non-youth in our family and tell them that they're your inspo, okay? Four, glorify God in your work. See that no matter what your title is, what your job is, no matter if you're passionate or not, that as you're on your way to work or you're working from home, so you like walk to a different room, to ask God to give you this biblical truth that your work has immense purpose as you make the name of God known and not revile the teaching that you've been taught. Okay, I want to close like this. I begin the sermon by asking the question, have you, do you feel like you're kind of on this balance beam and your legs are shaking and you're bent over in exhaustion or fear? I remember two years ago, I remember this distinct season of my life where I actually fell off the balance beam. Okay, so what I mean by that is not that I wasn't saved. I'll get to that later. But it's that as I read this text and these four things that I'm encouraging our church to do, I was like, I've done the opposite of these four things in succession. And I remember this season where I was believing lies over truth and believing that real Christians had to do something that was extra-biblically commanded. And that led me to actually prioritize things that are outside of my personal spiritual holiness and project onto others' blame and Phariseeism. I actually wasn't focusing on my spiritual fitness. And I remember that season of my life, I was dishonoring the authorities that God had given me in this church. And lastly, I began to lose purpose on what God had called us to in this life. And so as I fell off the balance beam, I tell you guys that, not because that's what we should strive for, but it's likely that at some point in your life, you will be swayed. So this sermon isn't, do all these things perfectly and God approves of you, but it is when you fall off, When your sin shakes your legs and your own brokenness makes you come down on your knees and you fall off the balance beam, here's what really keeps you balanced on the balance beam. Jesus picking you up with your shin splints, your broken feet, your discouraged soul, and placing you back upon the beam so that you may walk with him for the rest of your life. And he will teach you moment after moment after moment that even when you fall, his grace picks you back up And with that, with your eyes casted on Jesus, you can pursue these four things. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful that, yeah, two years ago, you didn't give up on me because I couldn't balance well, because I wasn't a good gymnast, because I had sin and brokenness to heal from and to be convicted of. Father, I'm thankful that this morning all of us can have a call to balance on the beam well, to know that a good church is what keeps us near, that we can look at examples in our community, we can look at faith-driven people who understand the call, that their work has a purpose, that they must pursue discipline, that we have to stay committed to the truth, and that we get to honor each other in the church. And would that actually change us? Would we be a people marked by those four things? But also, Father, when we fall, when our sin feels so, like it's clinging so tightly, when our brokenness is so real, would you pick us back up, Jesus? Would our eyes be kept on you? And would you be made much of in our weakness? Father, we do believe that it is in our weakness that your power is made perfect. And so, Father, if anyone is here this morning feeling full of shame and frustration that they have fallen off the beam, would you pick them up this morning? Would you restore their souls? Would you remind them of who they are in you? In your name we pray, amen.